Thank you very much and thank you for inviting me and having the trust in me that I will actually uh, contribute something meaningful because I'm coming uh, to this from a very different perspective. My uh, disciplinary home is educational linguistics uh, and I will be talking about uh, research in language teaching and language learning and how I began to see the relevance of the concept of possible selves in my own work. Uh, I really hope that you'll be able to uh, use uh, the example uh, and transfer them to your own research settings and context, but I very much welcome uh, the discussion afterwards which can uh, facilitate some of those uh, links. Uh, so I'll just begin with a little bit of a uh, background. Um, so as I said, my research is uh, located in educational linguistics and especially in the area of language uh, learning motivation. So here we are uh, back to motivation. There's uh, the construct of possible selves have been, uh, has been very firmly embraced by this research because there's now a very uh, strong empirical link uh, between uh, language learners' vivid and realistic images of their successful L2-speaking future selves as one of the most powerful forces that shape their engagement in the learning process and in the intercultural interaction more generally. Now, parallel to this research, and this is where I come in, uh, is a growing awareness of the crucial role that the possible selves of educators uh, play in creating learning spaces in which meaningful intercultural encounters or meaningful language learning uh, is facilitated. So in this paper I would like to use some examples from my own data uh, from an ethnographic project looking at uh, uh, language teachers lives uh, to um, as, as, a, as a basis for building a theoretical case for a transdisciplinary approach to conceptualising and researching the concept of possible selves. I will be referring to some of the theoretical work and you have, I believe, a handout in your packet uh, with a list of references, so if you wanted to check them out later on or you can ask me questions uh, later on. So as I said before, my research is located as a dynamic interface of additional language learning and teaching. So at one end of this continuum, I have uh, been intrigued by questions about what kinds of language learning opportunities need to exist in order for people with diverse needs, intentions and backgrounds to learn, and the theoretical as well as empirical inquiry I have conducted with colleagues and doctoral researchers has led into research territories as wide-ranging as classroom climate, motivation, learner vision, group dynamics, willingness to communicate, intercultural communication, language ideologies, dialogic peer interaction and teacher-led classroom discourse. Now, on the other side of this learning-teaching dynamic, I have become concerned with how teachers make sense of and transform such language learning opportunities into realities for their students in classrooms around the world and how they can be supported in doing so through teacher education and continuing professional development. So it is through probing uh, into this interface and connecting the research concerns of two domains of educational linguistics, second language acquisition and language teacher cognition, that my current uh, interest in language educators' possible selves has emerged. Now, I will be talking about a specific domain here, language teacher cognition, uh, and what that means to me and uh, my research. 
but I invite you to make parallels because I can see exactly the same parallels with research on possible selves. And at the end of that discussion, I will show you how I began to sense that I needed to engage with possible selves, but precisely in the ways in which I'm now going to tell you how I began to really question uh, the idea of language uh, teacher cognition from the most predominant framework uh, in the research in uh, education and educational linguistics. So within educational linguistics, um, language teacher cognition has been defined as the unobservable cognitive dimension of teaching, what teachers know, believe and think. And uh, the, there are two main strands to this research, and again, there are parallels here with possible selves. So the first strand is to identify the range of cognitions, usually beliefs or knowledge, or we can say possible selves, uh, that language teachers have about different aspects of their work. Uh, and the second strand is to shed light on the relationship between the cognitions uh, and practices. So because in this tradition of inquiry teachers, mental constructs, that's another kind of term used to subsume the whole area of beliefs and knowledge and possible selves. So because these mental constructs are assumed to be unavailable for direct observation, they're typically accessed through various elicitation instruments. And again, Holly uh, did a fantastic job there in uh, introducing us to some of the research on possible selves. But there would be lots of standardized questionnaires containing categorical belief knowledge statements or carefully developed stimulated recall um, protocols, interview guides. And these are then often put in contrast with practice, uh, either to compare how they, uh, they, they are similar or very different from what teachers or in, indeed learners do. Now, this uh, places a significant part of this domain of language teacher cognition, and I would like to argue of possible selves research equally, um, in the cognitivist perspective of conceptualizing and researching cognition, which could be subsumed by what Svard has termed an acquisition metaphor. So I will be drawing on Svard's uh, kind of heuristic acquisition metaphor versus participation metaphor, and there's a reference for those who would like to explore that uh, further. So the epistemological approach uh, that I am taking in this paper, and which has informed my theorising of both language teacher cognition in general and language educators' possible selves in particular, is aligned with a participation-oriented epistemological perspective. So within this perspective, uh, teacher cognition has been represented by a number of metaphors. So there's quite a few metaphors already floating around. Uh, so for example, Kordhagen, uh, 2001, uh, uses cognition as gestalt. Situational representations is used by Clara, 2014. And Scott, 2015, uh, uses patterns of participation. All of these, uh, while distinctive in their conceptual origins, emphasize teachers' situated, dynamic, and embodied knowing in action, or as we have conceptualized with, with a colleague, emergent sense-making in action, uh, and accordingly place the study of teacher cognition in settings in which it finds expression, the context of teachers' participation in practice. 
So practices, and now by that I mean a whole range of practices, teaching practices, teachers talking to each other as they are planning their lessons, um, curriculum planning, and even the social practice of a research interview. These are all practices um, are understood not as spaces in which reified mental constructs such as beliefs or possible selves may or may not be applied, so I'm not really looking at eliciting cognitions or possible selves on the other on the one hand, and on the other hand looking at practices and putting these uh, somehow in a relationship. But I'm looking at, and I'm going to quote uh, from Scott, dynamic and involving outcomes of individual and communal acts of meaning making. So this is where this comes from, emergent sense making in action. I'm really interested to see how people make sense of their practices in various contexts of their participation in practice. So going back, Dean, to your point, I would be interested to see what students are telling me about their experiences. Uh, and that goes back to Holly's point again, what that tells me about how they see themselves. So I would not ask them, how do you see yourself? What do you imagine your future to be? What are your career goals? I would, in my research, probably never even ask that question. And indeed, I did not ask that question in this specific study that I'm going to talk about. Yet looking at how people interpret and make sense of their practices really tells me an awful lot about the anticipated, the imagined. So I don't make a distinction between present, past and future but I'm looking at present participation in practice and how the anticipated, the desired, the future is already embedded and embodied in that action. So that's, that's how I conceptualise cognition, that's how I conceptualise uh, possible selves um, as well. Okay, uh, so I think I'm going to... Uh, just show you now that example that I promised. Uh, I will be looking at one specific teacher here, um, Iveta. Now, this study uh, is part of um, a larger project investigating the development of eight, and now these are language teachers and they teach English as a foreign language in a context in which English is not spoken widely. Um, uh, it's in Slovakia, English is taught as a subject. So pretty much a similar scenario to NFL instruction in the UK. Uh, they've got several classes per week, in this case three 45-minute classes per week. Um, now, Iveta is a qualified university-educated EFL teacher. Now, she is a state school uh, teacher, but a secondary school teacher. But again, I will be drawing some parallels here with higher education, uh, and I'm pretty sure that there are lots of important uh, overlaps here that we could be thinking of. But I'm just, I, I just thought I would use this example because I think it illustrates some of the points um, uh, that are important to this discussion today. Uh, so she teaches uh, students of the between between the ages of 11 and 18. Um, Iveta is a bilingual English teacher who shared her mother tongue Slovak with her students and had been teaching for a year at the start of the study. Had a full teaching workload which at the time was 23 contact hours um, 
per week and data were collected over the period of one school year and these are the different kinds of data that I collected. One thing that I need to mention is um, with regards to the context of this research, Iveta was one of the, the several participants in a teacher development initiative. There was a specific teacher development program developed to help teachers to understand the principles for motivating language learners in the classroom, so indeed possible selves, but uh, applied to language learner uh, motivation was part of uh, that particular teacher development program. But this was completely voluntary, no assessment involved. Teachers took part because they wanted to, no one really forced them to do that. And I think that's important uh, in terms of our assessing of the uh, status of the data. Uh, because the status of the data may be very different in assessment contexts, something that we can uh, come back to later on. So transcripts of audio recordings and ethnographic field notes from eight classroom observations, ethnographic field notes from five visits to Iveta school. So lots of notes about how Iveta interacted with her colleagues, what kind of conversations uh, were happening in the staff rooms, canteen, how uh, student-teacher interaction uh, happened uh, uh, in contexts uh, that were outside of the classroom uh, situation and so on. Then five in-depth ethnographic interviews over a period of one year, but all sorts of aspects of Iveta's life, her personal, professional uh, stories, and also uh, her um, uh, um, interpretations and reflections on the lessons that I observed as a researcher. Uh, and then ethnographic field notes from the actual teacher development course. So again, this is a set of data. I will, of course, not um, be doing a full analysis of this uh, data set, but this is the data for this particular uh, participant. Now, something uh, about the, the uh, analytical and data collection and analytical approach that I adopted. Um, I adopted what I would term, and Chalmers would term, uh, grounded theory ethnography. So it involves a prolonged engagement in the field, integrates multiple points of view, orients to participants' perspectives, pays attention to their use of language. So these are all very specific, well, for everyone doing ethnography, this is nothing new. So there are lots of overlaps with ethnography because, as I said before, that goes back to my conceptualization of cognition. I am interested in studying and understanding practice, so this is where the ethnography bit uh, comes in. But at the same time, I would like to understand conceptually what is happening in that practice, and that's the difference between ethnography and grounded theory. Ethnography, uh, which aims to arrive at a conceptual understanding of phenomena or processes occurring in the particular context. Now, the green code you will probably not see very well, but that's, that goes back to Scott's earlier quote. This allows me, in Scott's words, to disentangle patterns in the teacher's re-engagement in other past and present practices in view of the ones that unfold at the instant. And I would add to that, it also helps me to see the future, the anticipated in those uh, practices. So that's just really to explain what I did in terms of data analysis. And I think I would, and I, I'm not sure whether you can actually see this very well. Can you actually read the transcript or not at all? 
those who can i'll give you a few minutes but don't worry if you can't because this really comes and let me just give you a little bit of context this comes from one particular lesson and although i would love to as much as i would love to do this i really don't have that time uh, there's a long interaction between the teacher so a typical kind of teacher fronted um, so the students, about 15 of them, so not as a large group as this one, and the teacher at the front, they're having a, a, an interaction, a conversation in L2, uh, second language, which in this case is English. So they're speaking in English about a particular topic. Uh, they have done a textbook uh, unit and they're now discussing uh, uh, some of the things in that unit. So that's really the context, teacher-student interaction. So I'll... I'll I'll give you about a couple of minutes to just look at that to get, uh, get a flavour. Okay, X's are inaudible material, something that you couldn't, as a transcript, uh, in the transcript you couldn't quite make out. And the underline is uh, in the student's and the teacher's mother tongue, so that would be uttered in Slovak. Everything else would be in English. So I did not provide the translations, just indicated where the student switched to uh, L1, which is the first language. And it's a very long transcript, this one, so this is really just a tiny little bit and I'm going to make some claims that you can't actually see in this transcript, but you just have to trust me for now. But I can send you a full transcript in case you are interested. But I just really wanted you to have a flavour of what kind of interaction uh, was a kind of normal part of the educational process and depending on our backgrounds, we could probably see different things in this transcript, but I'm just going to uh, draw our attention to some of the features which are relevant to this discussion. Um, so, to start with, the stretch of discourse shown here appears to resemble what is a well-theorised micro-context whose pedagogical aims include enabling learners to express their opinions or share experiences activating their mental schemata, establishing a context, or promoting oral fluency practice. This is the kind of context, you know, the kind of meaning-focused interaction. And this is what the teacher and the students are aiming to achieve from the look of it. Uh, we're just assuming that that's what they're doing. Now, however, a closer scrutiny of the unfolding moment-by-moment -moment interaction in this segment reveals intriguing insights into Iveta's orientation to students' participation, suggesting that her goals for this exchange, and in fact for similar interactional events across the eight lesson transcripts, 
may differ from the meaning-oriented pedagogical goals for this type of interaction in the classroom. So although the students' terms are fairly frequent, and again, you, you don't see that here very well because there are just a few, but they are very frequent. You know, it's a constant teacher asks a question, comments, the students respond. But I think there's something very notable about uh, this. Are they typically brief? one-word responses to Ivita's questions, but also almost exclusively coming from one or two students. So if we saw the whole transcript, we could see that there's student one and student two somewhere, and that's it. In terms of participation in the public discourse, there's focus on these two who constantly respond to uh, the teacher and I think that's quite significant. So while the choice of the topic uh, driven by the coursework material, so this was dictated by what the coursework actually asked uh, the teacher to do, may suggest potential for students deep intellectual and emotional engagement in this interaction, Iveta's use of language seems to, de seems to be deployed not so much to deepen and certainly not widen, as I said before, students' participation in meaning-making, but rather to arrive at some sort of a correct answer. And that's in red. If you can see, you know, there's this interaction and then perfect. That is, you know, this is what I wanted to hear. So it's almost like, and again, I'm not judging here what the teacher should have been doing. It's just really that looking at action, at going back to cognition in action, I think I can see now that although we may treat this as a particular interactional context with particular pedagogical goals, what Iveta is actually doing by her discursive uh, practice is something very different. So she is trying to draw their attention to something, to some sort of a correct answer, uh, if you like. Um, so I began. Soon uh, in the analysis, I began to notice that there were tensions in Iveta's pedagogical goals um, and that these were kind of a more pervasive tendency in her data set. Uh, but I would like to just show you what Iveta is actually saying about this particular lesson that I observed, because I had the opportunity then to go back to her to the staff room with her and we had a conversation about what happened. And this is what she said about um, that lesson. And again, a couple of minutes, if you... So, in juxtaposition with the earlier transcript, I think you probably still read it. So, I just noticed that some of you were still reading. Sorry about that. So, her reflection, and again, here I really have to emphasize that you did not see the full transcript, so I'm just going to make some references to the other parts of that uh, transcript. Iveta's reflection lays bare critical discrepancies between the actual interaction in the classroom 
and her own reflection uh, on that interaction in a research interview, uh, how she positions students in her account. So here we can see, you know, but it occurred to no one that someone might actually need the money. Or when you think about it, it's awful. They don't know a single charity. They don't know. So how she positions the students is particularly intriguing in the context of what transpired and what the fuller transcript makes obvious. For example, the suggestion to give the money um, to a good cause, to charity, uh, was offered by the student and the student participants in the public classroom discourse not only demonstrated willingness to engage with the topic, but there is evidence of their knowledge of at least one specific charity. They actually mentioned the Red Cross specifically in that uh, fuller transcript. And general awareness of what different charities do in different parts of the world. So the picture that Iveta is painting here of the students is quite different from what an observer observed in the actual lesson. So there was already some sort of a discrepancy and one could start questioning. And that goes back to that point, you know, maybe the students are doing something very different from what we want them to do. But the point here is very different that I want to uh, make. For me, this and many other instances represented important tensions. And one could conclude that, okay, this whole research is flawed, the teacher is not telling the truth, and therefore we should dismiss that, you know, what she is doing, because that's not truthful to what happened. And that's exactly not what I want to do because I'm really interested in why she is constructing her narrative in the way she does. And this is where I began to sense that the desired, the anticipated, plays a huge role. So I started to see in my accounts that Iveta, what she is doing in her interpretation, she is engaging in those acts of meaning-making, sense-making, and I began to call them emergent acts of imagination. Now, I don't mean imagination as opposed to truth, but imagination as including the desired, embodying the desired, and at the heart of those acts of meaning-making were her desired images of future selves. Now, I could have asked her, I suppose, you know, what are your images of a good teacher? You know, who is a good teacher, teacher, who is a good educator? Can you please tell me, engage in a narrative, how do you imagine yourself as a future teacher? And I'm pretty sure that she would have come up with lots of different images, which, and this is a very kind of sociological orientation to it, because I have no doubt that those images would very much confirm to the cultural models available in the environment in which she was educated, grew up, and educated as a teacher uh, as well. So she could have done this, but what instead I saw as much more relevant was this, her kind of, and this comes from various places in my data, from her interviews, from her you know, lots of different conversations, you know, she was kind of recounting her personal experiences as a learner, for example, or as someone who travelled abroad. And I began to see there's a theme here. There's a very powerful theme. They put me in the group of beginners because I wanted it. But in fact, I wasn't, of course, a beginner. I was the best in the group. Oh, I was the star. 
And then, and when my favourite teacher congratulated me, she did it with tears in her eyes and said how I could manage to improve so much. Like it's this thing when somebody tells you, thank you, that you smiled at me today, you made my day. They seem disconnected. But I could sense this is someone with a deep desire to be appreciated, to be recognised, to be liked, aren't we all? But that seemed to be at the very centre of what she did. And at times that prevent her from seeing some of the opportunities for widening participation, for example. She was never attuned to some of those opportunities where she could have included more students because that desire to be liked was fulfilled by that one student. And, and this is particularly poignant to me. This really was that kind of, you know, when in your analysis you can, that's it, this was it for me. She was telling me about one particular event, and here I don't want to judge, and I'm not really interested in judging whether this is uh, uh, something that happened in the past or it's an imagined event. It's not for me to judge, but there's that deep desire already coming through it. So, you know, I asked her whether she sees in her teaching this feeling that um, the concrete outcome of her work and she says hmm, difficult to say once I had that feeling when there was not much to do during the last classes of the school year with kids and they said to me we're going to write what we think of you would you like us to do that they said they'd done the same thing for their class teacher and they also wanted to do that for me I said okay and they're like but we're gonna we're not gonna sign our names or anything and I like okay oh can you imagine how I cried over those sheets of feedback. Like, because of you, I started to learn English. Because of you, I will study hard. And I love you. Yes, you heard. I love you. So for me, this kind of came together. But for this teacher, what she was doing, and of course, if I asked you, what's your image of ideal self? She would never talk about this, probably. She would talk about those inspiring teachers. But I could see that this is at the heart of what she does. This is where possible selves in action, this is what informs how she participates in those patterns of participation. But for us as researchers and educators, I think however poignant this story, and to me it is very poignant, always makes me cry uh, whenever I look at it. But at the same time, I think we have to ask some hard questions about the kinds of images that we cultivate in our teachers um, so that they can be attuned to those opportunities that arise in the classroom context for making those possible selves of their students possible and visible and achievable because I uh, think that this teacher was already setting up powerful structures in that classroom context which meant that some students in that context came away with these very positive visions of what is achievable and others, those quiet ones, those marginalised ones, may never have felt that they could achieve what they could achieve. So I see a powerful role of the teacher uh, here. So I will just conclude, yeah, thank you very much. Perfect. Um, so I'll just conclude with a few uh, pointers here because I do realise how um, very different the, the research context may be for, for, from the research context uh, that most of you research. So just, just a few kind of pointers about why I think reconceptualizing or reimagining possible selves in this 
uh, alongside the participation metaphor may be useful. So I think first it reaffirms the power of the construct in aiding our understanding of people's investment in practices in classrooms and communities. Now, I think that um, when we think about or when we talk about these acts of imagination, I think we can start seeing that they have profound consequences for who gets to participate and in what ways in the classroom and beyond. So there's already a very powerful linkage there between the educators' uh, possible selves conceptualised through the participation metaphor and their investment in practice and what that investment then means for students' participation. Now, secondly, I think it allows for a meaningful conceptual expansion of the construct scope because I have always treated possible selves as a metaphor. In fact, I was very reluctant to adopt it um, and it was kind of hidden in plain sight uh, for me. Uh, and when I started to think about that construct, I think that placing it in action allows me to expand, not to treat it as a conceptual straitjacket, but rather to expand its scope, so include lots of emotional stuff, lots of moral stuff, so uh, dipping into moral, uh, you know, educational philosophy and moral psychology and, you know, really going interdisciplinary. Uh, so that's what it allows me to do. And finally, I think it allows me to do, although that will not probably be an issue for most people here, but in educational linguistics or in applied linguistics, we have had an issue that we tend to address issues that may not necessarily be of social relevance. We have kind of struggled with that, I think, as a domain. This makes that ethical dimension very important and very urgent because you can see what happens on the ground in terms of what teachers do and what the students uh, get, uh, how they get to participate. So I think it, it expands that metaphor. And this is where I end. Thank you very much. Thank you.